That's a microphone, Alfred. Can you talk? You can talk into it, yeah. Do you want to talk into it? What do you want to say? I want to. Want to what? I want to. You don't touch it. So we're going to do this, you ready? Hello, and welcome to Around the Console Doctor Who podcast. I'm Bob, and I'm joined by my little boy Alfred, apparently, who can't help but get involved in this. Um, I'm going to take you back in time, Alfred, and listeners. Um, (laughs) What do you want to say? He can speak better than me. I'm going to take you back in time uh, to an interview I did with Andrew Cartmel. Um, Andrew Cartmel, that's right, Alfred. Um, I did with Andrew Cartmel a, a good few years ago now as part of Prog to Who. Prog to Who. Prog to Who, that's right, darling, yeah. Um, yeah, um, it was amazing because, uh, as anyone knows me, my favourite era of Doctor Who is the McCoy Cartmel era. Um, so it was an absolute pleasure, and I thought it might be, might be time to bring this back out again. Um, just as a little bonus for you while you're waiting for it to record our new podcast. Um, so over to you, Bob. So hello, Andrew. Yeah, good evening, Bob. How are you? I'm very well, sir. How are you? Great, thanks. So it's 1986. You're in your late 20s. And you become script editor of Doctor Who. How? Why? And what were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> well, what I was really thinking was when they, the, I, they talked to me about... I was invited in for an interview with John, John Nathan Turner... Mm. And then he offered me the job, and it's like my real reaction was, "Oh shit!" Not, not because I didn't want the job, but it meant my whole entire life had to change. I had, I was living in Cambridge. I was working for quite. I was doing quite a, a good, quite a well-paid job at a, a sort of cutting-edge software firm. So it meant throwing all that out the window mm. and getting my ass down to London and changing everything, which I, I then proceeded to do. But it was um, quite an upheaval. So it, it was. Exciting and nerve-wracking, really. I'd say. Was it your first sort of job, like in the, in writing or sort of scripting? Yeah. Well, what had happened was I'd been to university and I didn't really want to. I'd studied computer science as something to fall back on if the writing didn't work out, yeah. and the writing didn't work out immediately. Uh, so I got a job in computer science. But then, you know, fate loves a good laugh. So as soon as I got settled in that, the writing sort of took off. Took off in the sense that. All these scripts I had out there, I'd got myself an agent. He'd flogged a couple of scripts. They were optioned but uh, not made. And then he showed a script to John, John Nathan Turner, when John was looking for a new script editor. Gave him something of mine to read. John liked it, invited me in, we had a chat, and then that was suddenly I had a career in television. Brilliant. I bet you were a very happy young man at the time. Well, um, there was always so much pressure and excited excited rather than happy i would say yeah. because happy suggests kind of a resting state uh, and uh leisure which there never was but i was certainly excited and engaged i'd say oh, that's, that, that's spot on and obviously the uh did you have the master plan the catwell master plan as it's now called oh um, well- well, the Cartmel master plan, insofar as there was one, was to reinvest the Doctor with certain mystery and stature mm. and to sort of take a certain approach to the show. And I didn't develop that approach until I started working on the show and I saw what worked, what didn't, and what I felt was wrong with it when I saw it with what I inherited. Mm. Were you a fan of the show before you, you took it, you, you know, you got the job? No, um, I wasn't against the show. I just, I was... It was, to me, just a cultural icon that was there. I grew up with it. It was in the background, like the the mini 
uh, or the miniskirt or the Jaguar or the TV shows like the Avengers or the prisoner. It was part of my culture. So, and the TARDIS, you know, and Daleks, these were all things that were, uh, in the wallpaper of my mind as I grew up. Mm. So I knew about Doctor Who and I liked Doctor Who insofar as I was aware of it, but I didn't watch the show. And I wouldn't say I was really a fan of very much at all. I was a fan of The Prisoner yeah. uh, back in the day. Uh, and also later on I became a fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah. But so, but I wouldn't, uh, I'm very rarely a fan of any television program. So it was at the periphery of my vision, Doctor Who, when I, when I came on. Because obviously the, the first season that you, when you came on board, um, you know, season 24, was very, compared to the 25 and 26, which in my personal opinion are my favourite seasons of Doctor Who um, in general. Uh, but season 24, was that already sort of in place, the writers and such? Or? No, 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 no. All we had, we, we had the first episode, one episode of a four-part story, one little script, and it was called Strange Matter. Now, that's what became Time and the Rani. Yeah. But even that first episode changed considerably. That was all we had of the 14 episodes. That was all that was there. And we didn't even have a doctor. Colin Baker had left. There'd been a big Ferrari and there'd been all kinds of bad blood and a big falling out. And Colin Baker was gone. There was no doctor. And there was one episode, one 25-minute script, which needed considerable revision. So that's where we were when I joined him. Was it? Were you involved in the casting of Sylvester McCoy then? Yes, to my eternal delight. What, oh, John, John Nathan Turner was a complex and interesting character. He was often the nicest of men, and, and he was also often a very difficult man. Mm. But one of the things I would say is that he, he was very open in the sense that when he got me on board and he felt that I knew what I was doing, I was on his side, part of the team. So when he started casting people... There was no reason he wouldn't have me. He would have me in the office. He would get me to meet people. It was great. It was terrific the way that he would just involve me to that degree. And not everybody necessarily would have. But I guess me and him were the show. There was a wonderful production secretary called um, Kate Eastiel, who was a terrific asset to the team. But that was it. That was Doctor Who. There was me, John, and the secretary. That was it. Um, people would come production teams would move in to make a sh story. So Time and the Rani would have Andrew Morgan and his team, then they would go away again and a different team would come in. The only fixed people were me, John and Kate, and that was it. And Kate wasn't involved in the creative decision. She was magnificent in what she did, but she wasn't really in on that sort of thing. So when you think about it, there was nobody else except me for John to have there. So it literally was four production team changes for each, each adventure then? Yeah, I mean, there might be some... Well, for instance, John's boyfriend, whose name was Gary Downey, was, uh, I think you call him production manager, something like that. Uh, so he was sort of like a... He was the guy who sort of called the shots on, on, the, uh, on the floor to make sure everything was in place. Anyway, he tended to be there all the time because of his relationship with John, and John would pull strings to get him on a lot. Mm. And, and there were sometimes... Oh, yeah, there was also a production... Associate, so tell a lie. There was somebody called the production associate who was the um, the unit accountant. She she was the accountant. That was Anne Fagater in certainly the first season, and I think some of the subsequent ones. So she was involved, but she was only on the finance side. Mm. So there was that level of continuity. Those people would would thread through the series, but otherwise it was pretty much all change every time. When you set about, obviously getting a new new writers in, you know, such as Ben Ivanovich and you know Mark Platt and people like that. Were they friends of yours or were there people that you were aware of or 
they all became friends yeah. uh, and I became aware of them. The way it worked is in my, I'd mentioned I was trying to become a writer and I hadn't yet succeeded. How far I'd got was I'd written some scripts that had attracted some attention. And at the BBC in those days, there's something called the script unit. These days there's a thing called the writer's room, which is all very posh and it has an online presence. Well, of course the internet didn't exist. And the, the script unit basically consisted of one, very nice man whose name was Tony Dinner. Wow. Tony Dinner. Uh, and he sat in a tiny little office and he scripts would be passed to him. And if he thought you had talent, he'd invite you in. And he, there'd be, Tony would be sitting there and there'd be a bunch of us hungry young writers sitting around. And we would read, have our scripts read aloud and we would discuss the scripts and we would get lots of lovely encouragement. But that was really it. because. Yeah. Tony would try and recommend us, try to get us onto shows, but he had no clout. So, in fact, it was sort of a cul-de-sac and a dead end, but it was sort of a, a meeting house for writers. And when I was there, I met Ian Briggs and Malcolm Cole and a number of other writers, but it was Briggsy and Malcolm who struck me as being uh, the right kind of writers for Doctors. When I sat down in that chair in Union House in Shepherd's Bush, mm. uh, they were the names that immediately sprang to mind. I'd met more writers than that, but they seemed to me likely to fit the bill. So that's how they came into it. Uh, also, the moment I sat down behind that desk, agents began to ring me up. As soon as it became known as script editing Doctor Who and that there was another series about to launch, mm. every agent in town, well, a lot of agents, just got in touch and tried to flog me their writers. And I learned very quickly. For instance, I think it was within the first few weeks, I got a phone call from an agent and he made an appointment for me to see a couple of his writers. And then he sent the scripts through. And I read these scripts and they were all wrong. Mm. So I had these meetings set with writers who I knew I couldn't use. So the first lesson I learned was don't have a meeting until you've read a sample <laughs> of the guy's work or the woman's work. Yeah. So that, you, I learned on the fly. I learned that very rapidly. And various people would come through. John, the producer, recommended writers that he liked. Mm. As it happened, I didn't really like any of them. And one of the greatest things that John did was not to impose those writers on me. Mm. The only writers he, he did impose were Pip and Jane, who did Strange Matter, a.k.a. Yeah, Emma Rani, because he'd already commissioned them and they'd worked on the show before and they were friends of his. Mm. Other writers that he knew... Uh, he, he would arrange for me to meet them or, or read their scripts. But when I said no thanks, he didn't press me on it. That was great. I mean, I still it still rankles that I had to work with Pip and Jane because I didn't like that script and I never would have voluntarily have worked with them. But beyond that, John gave me a completely free hand, which was wonderful. So other writers would turn up like um, Stephen Wyatt. He sent through a script. He, he, he also had been attending the script unit, but our paths had never crossed. Mm. And he sent a script into me, and it was a script called Claws, which is sort of a pun on Jaws. And it was about the cutthroat world of cat breeders. And it was great. It was just really funny, really witty, quite nasty, uh, and had this kind of uh, eccentric extra. Like, yeah, this guy, this guy's definitely a contender. And as soon as he came in, he said, how about we do a story set in a high-rise tower block? I thought, yeah. So Stephen White was a very, very easy uh, road. Mm. And so that so Stephen came in that way. Um, I mentioned other writers. I got writers to send in scripts. And one of those writers was called Graham Curry. And he sent a radio script about football called Over the Moon. Right. 
And I knew within a couple of pages that, that he was a contender because his dialogue was so good. It was just funny and sharp. Yeah. And you couldn't have, you couldn't get further from a science fiction television show than a radio script about a comic, <laughs> about football. But this guy obviously had something. And you see, when Graham came in, I and I got to know him a bit. It turned out that he had a degree from Cambridge. He'd, he'd done his dissertation about the grotesque in literature. So you can instantly see how something like that might suggest to me, get my little antenna waving, thinking, ah, somebody who understands the grotesque in literature might have a bent towards the fantastic and science fictional and might come up with a really good Doctor Who, which he, he did indeed in the long run. But this has all been by way of a very extended an extensive answer to your question, which was about how I got the new writers in. Yeah, no, no, it's good. It's, it's good to hear the history of them because obviously when you get on to, to season 25, you've got four very different, you know, adventures in there. You've got Remembrance of the Daleks, which is Ben's story, so strong, proper Doctor Who, Happiness Patrol, like you're saying, from Graham Curry. You know, he can tell he's that sort of different writer. And then Stephen, you know, Stephen White with The, the Greatest Show in the Galaxy. Again, it's all, they're all very different in... Not necessarily torn, but obviously, you know, with the, with the themes and the themes that they deal with. Um, so it's just quite interesting how you sort of got the, you know, you, you got the writers in, if you see what I mean. Yeah, well, the for the for that series, uh, just to go on to the other writers in the picture, there was uh, um, Ben Aronovich uh, was in touch with another producer at the BBC at that time called Caroline Alton. And he'd, what had happened is he'd written a detective story called The Dole Q Detective, a script. And she was doing something somewhat similar. So she got him in and had a chat to him. And somehow the subject of Doctor Who arose. She probably said, oh, there's a new, right, a new script editor on the blog on Doctor Who. So Ben went off and he wrote a Doctor Who spec episode. And he got Caroline to pass it to me, which is, you know, a perfectly legitimate thing to do. And so she handed me this script and I read it and I, I just flipped. It was, it wasn't a perfect episode, but he was the perfect writer. I could tell that he understood science fiction. He had got Doctor Who and he was really, really good. So that was that was just such a, a tremendous bonus. So, you know, that, that was so great news. So um, that was Ben penciled in for the next season. And then Stephen, we brought back. Um, Graham Curry, by that time, the thing that happened with Graham is I instantly liked his script and I thought this guy, you know, the grotesque in literature this guy's obviously a contender mm. so I kept uh, he kept coming in with ideas he'd come with an idea and I said nope and he'd come <laughs> with an idea and I said nope 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 no, this that, that nope nope no. but it was better to say no right away be, you know because yeah. I, these, none of these worked and so he began to get a bit discouraged which was a shame because you know he, he's this terrific writer and um, finally one day he just comes to my office and he was he was a bit low in spirits. He just slumped in, in the chair in my office. And he said, what about a story about a planet where it's a crime to be unhappy? And I said, yes. You see, and I could just, yes, that's absolutely, like the high-rise block, you just suddenly thought, yes, I see potential there. Yeah. And it was great, but that was, a. you see, those are the sort of opposite poles. Stephen White on his first meeting came up with this thing and, and Graham on his nth meeting after getting discouraged came up with something. Yeah. Uh, then we had Kevin Clark. He sent in a script called, hmm, you know what? I'm not sure I can remember what it was called, but it was about all about a van. It was sort of like all these different people who hire this van and their various adventures. And it was really good. It was really a striking script. So I got him in. He didn't have... Kevin Clark was a terrific writer, especially of things like thrillers, but he had no science fiction in his blood at all, so to speak. So I sort of... I kind of had to 
point him in that direction and help him with that, help him with the heavy lifting of the science fiction. And he came up with a terrific script, which I, I don't think turned into a terrific show. There's a lot of problems with Silver Nemesis, but I, I, you know, in my carefree manner, I tend to blame the director and other people for those and not the script. There, there were, it was a terrific script and Kevin was a terrific writer. So, that, so Kevin came in via sending a script on spec or via his agent. So that, that's how the, those guys lined up. And I should just to mention Mark Platt, because yeah. Mark, he's such a good Doctor Who writer. Yeah. And his approach was so classy because, you see, I got a lot of scripts through the post, obviously, most of them total duds, uh, you know, and a lot of dreadful stuff just in what we call the slush pile. But a lot of stuff came through the BBC internal post. Back in those days, there used to be these manila envelopes with a sort of grid on them, and you would write... Uh, a room number on it and then it would go in the internal post and then you'd cross out the room number and reuse the envelope and these things would go around and in the BBC internal post I got a number of scripts from people who worked at the BBC who were Doctor Who fans who wanted to write for the show Mm. and who thought that because they were BBC insiders it would give them the inside track well I didn't hold that against them but it certainly gave them no advantage and I always so I got these dud scripts through the BBC internal post and then one day uh, I got this script through the, through the proper post from this guy called Mark Platt. I believe it was Cat's Cradle. And it was wild and it was wonderful. And it, it had some great stuff and it was crazy and undoable. But this guy obviously had something. And I got him in. And when I got him with the meeting, it turned out he worked at the BBC. But he hadn't used the internal post. He just approached it like any other punter. And I thought, well, that's so honorable. That's so smart. It's like not taking advantage. I just thought that was really creditable of him. I mean, it wouldn't have made any difference if he wasn't a good writer, but I just thought that that sort of added to my my immediate feeling that this guy was, was a good bloke, as well as being a good writer. So he was very classy about that. So we got Mark Platt on. And then the last writer of my writers was Rona Monroe. I think we've covered everybody. Anybody I missed? Sorry, Ian Briggs as well with the Curse of Fenric. Oh, no, well, the thing about Briggs was, um, as I mentioned, he came via the, the script unit along with Malcolm Cole, so I knew yeah. him from that. So that's how those guys came in. But the way Ronan Monroe came in was I was invited to a party at the BBC. What they would do is they would invite the script editors to a wine and cheese party where they'd get to meet lots of writers. And this is a very good initiative because, you know, we're the people who hire the writers, the writers want the work, we want the writers. So it was a terrific idea. But... To understand this, you have to remember that when I was working on Doctor Who, everybody hated Doctor Who. The BBC hated it. I'm not making this up. It was completely despised. It was a real pariah of a show. So here I am, poor Andrew, the script editor of Doctor Who, at this party with all these trendy young writers. And every time they would introduce me to a writer, as soon as they heard I was working on Doctor Who, they'd make an excuse to to race to the other side of the room. So it was a bit discouraging. And then I was introduced to these two young women writers. And I, and I said, oh, I'm script editing Doctor Who. And they both screamed with delight. And one of those writers was Rona Monroe. So I thought, aha, okay, well, this is, this is a good thing. And it turned out Rona Monroe was kind of a perfect writer because she wasn't writing anything at all like Doctor Who. She was kind of writing feminist comedy, right? Mm. But she was a Star Trek fan. She was a science fiction fan, so she understood the genre. So it, unlike Kevin Clark, who was a good writer who didn't have a clue about science fiction... Hugh was a good writer who did have a clue about science fiction, which made things that much easier. And Rona, with Survival, I think, turned out one of our best scripts ever. Yeah, no, Survival's fantastic. Like I say, the last two sort of seasons um, are my favourite. 
So when who were you working with when you saw the, the obviously the Cartmore master plan? So I, I know that um, uh, Mark Platt because he did Lug Barrow, didn't he, for the uh, Virgin books, and that was sort of a part of the, the time. Yeah, well, history. what I would do, to, what I would disentangle it. I suppose here's the overlap. Somebody like Mark and Lung Barrow includes a lot of lore about the Doctor, a lot of sort of canonical detail about the Doctor and, you know, this and that. Mm. But my basic thrust was, okay, here's what we're lumbered with. We're lumbered with the notion that the Doctor's a Time Lord. I mean, we didn't always have that notion on the show. When he first appeared as Hartnell, yeah. uh, the Doctor was a complete unknown. And then gradually over the years, it turns out like that there's the meddling monk and he's a similar kind of character. And then yeah. it turns out there's a whole bunch of these guys and they're called the Time Lords. And then rather later on, it turns out that they come, the planet they come from is called Gallifrey. And, you know, we get the Pridonian Academy and all this and that. And every one of these story initiatives, I think, causes the Doctor to shrink and make him less, yet obviously less unique and less important and definitely less mysterious. So, okay, we're lumbered with this whole background, backstory of him as a Time Lord. I thought, well, how can we make him a total mystery and make him more powerful and more enigmatic and just put him back to the way he should be, give him his stature back? Okay, we'll say that he was apparently a Time Lord, but in fact... He was actually there at the creation of Gallifrey. He pre, he pre, he existed before Gallifrey, right? Mm. So uh, I then started talking to Ben Aronovich and Mark Platt, who knew about the the show. They knew about the details of Gallifrey and things like that. So I tried to work out within that terminology what we could do to make the Doctor more than just another Time Lord. Mm. So that was my effort, that, but that was as far as my thinking went. I wasn't really bothered about the specifics. When all that stuff about Rassilon and Omega and the Doctor, that came through conversations with Ben and Mark about the ways and means of making the Doctor bigger, more mysterious, and something more than just a Time Lord. And then we get those those hints dropped into Kevin Clark's script, oh, I'm much more than just a Time Lord, all that business, right? So the thing I've got to say is, number one, I wasn't really that bothered about the Gallifreyan detail necessary to achieve that. I just knew what my end game was. Mm. And the other thing is, I didn't ultimately have any notion of what the Doctor was beyond that. You see, I didn't want to take a mystery. The mystery had been lost because they'd defined the Doctor. I didn't want to then give him a different definition because then we lose the mystery again. I just wanted to have an open question. So that's what I was working towards. Yeah. And... To the, so the Cartmore master plan, that's what we just talked about is the minutiae of it, the boring detail. But the, 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 insofar as there was anything of a master plan, it was just to make the Doctor exciting again, yeah. make him a question mark again instead of this. You see, by the time we got to Colin Baker, and Colin's terrific, he was a very good actor and a really nice bloke, but you give him that terrible costume and also, yeah. the, he, the, you know, the, he ends up standing on trial. You know, the, the doc, in my concept, you just couldn't get the Doctor to stand still for a trial for a whole bunch of episodes. He, it just made him, you know, it's putting a wheel clamp on the TARDIS. It just makes it too feeble. Yeah. So the Doctor become a bit of a victim and, and that was, I think, symptomatic. I think that, that that occurred throughout the Peter Davison and Colin Baker era. There was a lot of stories where the Doctor just ends up wandering around he, and he's he's often the, the victim, the fall guy. He's very passive. He's just a guest star in his stories. No, he's got to be really powerful. He's got to be behind the scenes pulling the strings. He has to be the prime mover. And he has to be a mystery again. Mm. You know, I, I'm repeating myself a bit here, but there's only so many ways you can say paradox, enigma, mystery. And, you know, this powerful, uh, vast, 
impressive figure mm. shrouded it in mystery, like a mountain in the distance. And so that's what I was aiming towards. And the way we achieved it was basically, well, that was my approach. And I noticed that when Russell took over, he too understood that you couldn't, the, 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 um, the Time Lords were kind of an albatross around his neck uh, of the Doctor. And they were really, you needed to get rid of them. So his approach was to sweep them away with the Time War, right? You kind of, you said, you know, okay, you have the Time Lords, but now they're gone. They've been blasted out of existence. So he kind of cleared the decks in that way. I, I was working on my own way of clearing the decks and freeing the Doctor. I do feel now that the, the, the um, all these things from the past have kind of come up like, like uh, ivy, you know, it's gradually suffocating a house again. I do feel that, that these days the doctor's got all these things growing up around him again and covering him up again. I feel that there's probably time for, an, uh, you know, a, a machete again to free him of all that. Yeah. And I think that'll happen at some point. It works well, and I always think it's the, the sort of, not throwaway lines, but the lines, like you, like you say, are more than just the Time Lord. It's one line, but it adds so much to the character. Um, I mean, particularly in Battlefield, when it's this whole Merlin thing. Oh, I loved all that. I like yeah. the note for himself. All that stuff's just brilliant. It's terrific. Yeah, and, and he doesn't. He he's behind it all, but he doesn't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't really know what's going on. It's just brilliant. It's a, it's a brilliant script. I, in many ways, it didn't come off. And Ben, I know, is very unhappy with. It. He can't watch it. But I love love his script, and, and I love the intention of it. The yeah. intent of that script. Yeah, it's a fantastic one. Um, so, season 27 um, that uh, was never made. How much did you, did you know Doctor Who was done after season 26? No, you, no, no. Well, no what, what, you see, they never had the good grace to tell us to cancel the show. In a sense, I don't think they ever did cancel it. I think they just didn't renew it. They just let it drag on. Yeah. John certainly had an inkling that it wasn't going to, the next season wasn't going to come anytime soon. It wasn't going to follow on immediately because he got me to, to write a little coda for survival. Survival wasn't the last episode to be shot, but it would be the last to be transmitted. Mm. So for the very last episode, he wanted a kind of little, he, he wanted a little kind of farewell speech because he knew that there wasn't going to be another series immediately, yeah. that it was going to be rested for at least a year. So that's how much John knew, but nobody ever had the good grace to tell us to our faces that they were cancelling the show. And as I said, I don't think they did cancel it. They just kind of let let it lie there. We, and the behaviour of the BBC was just completely disgraceful in this regard, especially to yeah, John. It was horrendous, yeah. My, I mean, my understanding of it, what John was, what you, was a staff producer. Now, what that means is he had a job for life. Uh, I was guest staff, which means I was freelance and, and I had no employment security, but John had a job for life. Mm. And as I understand it, what happened was, after they canceled Who, he was just sitting there doing nothing for years. And he hated that. He was he wanted to be a working producer. So the story goes that it was intimated to John that if he resigned his staff producership and went freelance, that they'd give him some work. Of course, as soon as he resigned, they didn't give him any work and he was stuffed. I mean, that was the kind of way he was treated. John had his flaws, he had his faults. But he certainly didn't deserve to be treated like that. And Doctor Who was a great show. I mean, it was making money for them all over the world, and these bastards cancelled it. It still makes me furious to this day. I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously, all us Who fans, it was a very dark day. The BBC were horrendous, you know, for what they did. I mean, John Nathan Turner, as controversial as he is, you know, and that's a good thing for me, because he's probably my favourite producer for the reasons of his, of his strengths. He wasn't afraid, you know, to, like you say, embrace ideas and, and try something different. 
and he gave new talent a chance. Now he made yeah. some terrible mistakes. I mean, all the, by the time I'd come on, I think that it, the show had been run into the ground. That you know, I really do. I think it was really in the doldrums, and that was the result of the directions and the decisions that John had taken. Yeah. But at the same time, he hired me. He hired Sylvester. He hired Sophie. Mm. He let me hire the writers that got the, the show out of the doldrums. And we, you know, we were under full sail. We were doing great. So, you know, John was capable of, of screwing the show up and putting it back together again. And that, that was why it was so infuriating that they cancelled us just when we were getting really good. I mean, we'd done Remembrance the Daleks. We'd done, yeah. we, we'd done uh, Fenrir. Fenrir. We'd done yeah. Survival. We'd done Ghostlight. Mm -hmm. Then they cancelled the show. It, you know, what can you say? What can, yeah, and that's... You and that's, 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 that's four-letter words. <laughs> and that's the thing, isn't it? Because we never saw season 27. Did you? How much had you, had you prepared anything at all for season There were no written scripts. There were a lot of ideas floating around, mm -hmm. uh, including... Um, introducing a new companion, because we probably would have done that at some point in that, that season. And there was also the idea of how Sophie was such a great companion, ace, sure. uh, that, that we wanted to not just let her, you know, just disappear. And so Mark and Ben had come up with, cooked up the idea that she should become a time lord, time lady. Now, I always hate, I make no bones about hating the time lords, simply because they diminish the doctor, but they're part of the show's heritage. And so that that, that was their notion. I thought, okay, that's cool. You know, I can, we can endure a time time lord subplot if it, if it pays off Sophie and Ace really well. So that, that's probably what we would have done. And we come up, we'd come up with this fantastic new companion who had seen some life in the... Uh, in the big finish, big finish yeah. Just, yeah, yeah, rain. She was terrific. Uh, ben Aronovich and I created her, and um, yeah. But other than that, we had little tag ends of stories. What I had more than finished stories was writers I wanted to use. Writers like Robin Mukherjee, Tony Etchell, a guy, I think it was Charles Vincent, a couple others. Mm. Um, because I never got to work with them, their names aren't branded into my brain. But yeah, so a lot of stuff lined up. A lot of interesting ideas. And it could have been, and Sylvester had really hit his stride and yes, settled in with Sophie, and we'd learned how to do it. So, of course, that's the point at which they boot you out, is the point at which you got really good at doing it. Mm. Anyway, so season 27 is, was just a tantalizing possibility, really. Because obviously, the, you know, the, the, during the dark times when it was off air, um, the Virgin Books, which you were quite a, a strong com contributor to, you know, along with, along with Mark Platt and. Ben Ivanovich, how, how was it? How was that? Did you have a big? Obviously, you did three books, but did you have any, any sort of part in the Virgin? I'm chuckling because my big uh, contribution to the, the Virgin New Adventures was they came to me and um, they offered me the chance to do one, and I heard what the deal was financially, and I said no. Because right. <laughs> money was crap. Yeah. So my agent said, oh, this is great. I never get to say no to anything because people always need the work too badly. Yeah. So he went back to them and said no. And so they jacked the offer up. I think they increased the offer by 500 pounds or something. Yeah. And the, the, the thing, the nice thing about that was that wasn't just for me. I mean, all the writers got an improved deal. So my big contribution to the new adventures, everybody got 500 quid more than they would have done. <laughs> so that was my, my big sort of... Um, practical contribution i suppose my uh, creative contribution was that i i wrote quite a dark and adult kind of novel but you see that that was i was sort of invited to do that because they they had the whole deal that made it more attractive was these weren't novelizations 
these were full-length novels, proper proper long novels, and they were aimed at a more adult market. That was always their intent to, to do that. And so that was quite attractive. And so although I helped to set the stamp on that, it was kind of the brief I had to, to an extent. I, I was very... Ben Aronovich had given me a book called Neuromance by William Gibson, which was the classic cyberpunk novel. It was the novel that introduced cyberpunk. Mm. So I read, I loved that. And I also loved its sequel, which was called Count Zero. So that was what was floating around in my head. And that was the model I had in mind when I sat down to write a Doctor Who novel. I wanted to write a cyberpunk one. And those books, um, what we laughingly call the war trilogy, Warhead, Warlock, War Child. Mm. Um, my sister always said if I wrote another one I should call it Wardrobe <laughs> it's pretty pretty witty coming from my sister so those three books um, I think they were quite influential but when I look back at them I just remember what a learning curve it was I was kind of hacking around in a jungle trying to work out how to write novels and people have said some very nice things about them and I'm very proud of that yeah. but I, I kind of can't bear to go back and look at them for fear I'll see the flaws in them I mean, the, the Virgin novels, a lot was tried, and obviously, you know, some of it has come to fruition on, you know, on television, on human nature and, you know, that kind of, you know. Yeah, which was a terrific Paul's story, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of strong ideas, and, it, and again, it just brings you back to thinking if, you'd have con if Doctor Who had continued, the BBC had continued, you know, you've got all these writers here who've written these extremely strong novels, including yourself, that it could have been so good. Do you know what I mean? Well, there's a good... Big pool of the talent, but the problem was certainly when I was doing it is you had you could have four writers a year at most. Right, yeah, cost. And, and as script editor, I should have been writing some of those. I mean, that all the other script editors had, and I kind of very nobly and self-sacrificingly just thought oh, I'm going to get a whole bunch of new writers, give them the chance. But normally you'd have the script writer doing one, and then that, so that'd be three, three a year. That's about the maximum you could hope to use. And then you, of course, you'd read somebody like Ben comes on, does a great script. You think, oh, we've got to use Ben again. Yeah. Briggs does a great script, use him. Stephen White's done a great script, use him again. Yeah. You know, I would have used Rowan again. So soon you'd be in a position where. You just had a log jam. So, so say I'd done season 27 with my dream team of writers, it probably would have been something like Ben, Rona, Ian, Mark, you know, or yeah, one myself. So, so where would the new writers come? I still wanted to bring new writers. And so you rapidly run out of slots. So you're saying that there's this uh, wealth of talent. The problem is getting that wealth of talent through the bottleneck of very limited commissioning on the telly. He always feels like a bit more of a, a team of writers. So the, the people that you brought on, I don't know if it's the way you, you sort of talk about. It, you're talking in a very, in a, you know, an extremely high light, and rightly so, or good light. But it, it feels like more of a team effort. We, we, we were writers, a team. We, 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 I deliberately, well, I deliberately encouraged that, but mostly because it was fun. Yeah. I'd get them in, we'd have lunch together. I'd get them to talk to each other, and they would begin swapping ideas. And you got this wonderful kind of cross pollination going. And so you get um, people like Ben and Mark dreaming up this stuff, and Briggs, and, and you know, would involve. Graham Curry. It was really collegial. It was terrific. Yeah. And Rona, too. It wasn't just a boys' club. And it's you got all these people, they're all talking to each other, all looking. The great thing was once I got some good scripts written, I could show them to people. Yeah. Probably about probably Dragonfire was the first one that really began to show what we wanted to do. Because you were talking about your favorite seasons being 25, 26. Yeah. And well, season 24, I mean, everybody says that. And I keep thinking, oh, why don't I like 24? And of course, there were a lot of problems with 24. I considered Time and the Rani a write-off. Some people love it. I, I take no credit for it. I don't like it. It's just not what I wanted to do. So then you had the remaining three stories. Um, Paradise Towers, Stephen's a great writer. Uh, 
Malcolm's terrific, and Briggs with uh, Bannerman and Dragonfire, right? But the thing is, we've still got Bonnie. Now, Bonnie was potentially a great, Mel was potentially a great companion. There's no question that Bonnie Langford couldn't have done it because she could. We know from her work with Big Finish how good she can be, and now she's on EastEnders, right? She had been lumbered with this persona of the kind of the girl who screams. And Mel, who had originally supposed to be this computer whiz, that was all gone out the window. She just sort of wore silly frocks and would scream and run down corridors. So we we were at a dead end. We were stuck with that uh, dead end companion. So I know that sounds terribly cruel, and, but it was unnecess- unnecessary, but it did end up that way. So we couldn't really get going. We had Sylvester, who was fantastic. Brilliant. We couldn't really get going until we had a new companion. So it was really only with Dragonfire that we began to show what we were capable of doing. And Dragonfire has some great stuff in it, but it's not quite there. Uh, but I, as you say, with the next season, we are there because all the elements are in place. Yeah, definitely, without a doubt. Um, Comic books. Now, this was, uh, I've done a tiny bit of writing, a tiny bit of writing in my time. And something that always not, maybe, yeah, fascinates me is applying writing to a visual, like a proper visual medium, if you see what I mean. So it's, yeah. you've got very limited text, because um, it's obviously all about the artwork, usually. Um, how do you go about writing comics? That's something that. Co- comics are very easy. Um, well, they're not necessarily easy to do well, but they're an easy format to write to. Mm. Um, they're easier than a TV script because you just need this, and you can do things that you can't do in television. You just need this, you do need to describe things because you need to tell the artist exactly what you see in your head. They won't always draw it, but a good a good artist, I think, will. So when Dave Gibbons is drawing Watchmen, if you look at the Watchmen scripts, those are, Alan Moore has described in incredible detail what he wants. Yeah. I mean, just the first, the very first panel, which is a shot of some garbage in the gutter. There's this lot, like this is thirty line description of what he wants. <laughs> Culminating in Alan Moore saying, oh, "Let's have some good gutter art here, Dave." Uh, so you do have to say what is in your head. So you need to give a succinct but very clear description. Mm. And these days, I am writing comics. In fact, Ben Aronovich and I are writing comics. Uh, comic book spin-offs of his Rivers of London novels. That's great, great novel, actually. Quick, quick ad here, if anybody hasn't tried Rivers of London yes. and subsequent four novels, go out and try them right now. They're fantastic. Yeah. And we're doing comic books, not based on the novels, but with the same character. They're new stories featuring the characters and featuring the world. And turning out terrific. The first one's due out in July, I believe, from, from Titan Comics. Oh, We've got nice. Lee Sullivan doing the art and a, and a wonderful colorist called Luis Guerrero. Now, Lee is knocking it out of the ballpark. We're so happy with the artwork on it. And Lewis just adds another dimension because I've never realized how much a colorist, the, the color can add to things. Mm. Anyway, we've got this great team going. It's very gratifying. So what I was saying is when we write the scripts, for instance, when we write the scripts, we will put in photo reference for Lee or like a um, you know a URL that said, go to this page and have a look at such and such. Yeah. And it's just really useful. And he, he's really taken that on board. He does a great job. So writing for comics, if you're interested in writing for comics, you should just do what I did, which is to get, get a hold of some comic scripts. I, I love Alan Moore's work. I, he's my hero, actually. Yeah. 
And so I had some fanzines which had some excerpts from his scripts. So, okay, so that's how you do the layout. There's no one fixed layout. There's a general layout that you approach separating dialogue and action and breaking up panels and pages. So you you just go online these days and find some examples and just read some of the best. Read somebody like Alan Moore and just get a feel for it. But so it's... That's kind of a, a bit of a brush off because you were talking about what it's like to write for comics. The easiest thing is to look at some comic scripts. That, and the reason I'm kind of giving that glib, dismissive answer is because it's a bit hard for me to isolate in my head exactly how writing a comic is different from writing a film or a TV script. There, there are crucial differences, but I have to have be working on one at the moment, to, or yeah, preferably yeah. one in each genre, to sort of give you an account. But certainly compared to writing novels, they're vastly easier. They're vastly easier in the sense that they're quick to write. Mm. However, they are more difficult in that they have to be immensely compressed. Yeah. Recently I've been doing some comics for Doctor Who Adventures, which is a magazine, Doctor Who magazine aimed at kids. Mm. And they have a comic strip in there, which is four pages long. So you've got to tell the entire story in four pages, and that's an incredible discipline and a lot of fun and at one point they, they decided to split the script up like you used to have four pages together but then they decided it'd be nice to have a cliffhanger so you'd have two pages then later in the issue you'd have another two pages yeah, yeah. so you're sort of going to have, have a two page unit it's quite interesting and it's, it's great fun yeah. And it, but it does require your head to be dialed into the correct wavelength to do it and it, so it's Rivers of London that's coming out in the uh, in July. Yeah, it's what it is, is is the way it works is they do a five issue comic book run and then they gather those together in book form as a graphic novel. So we, the the uh, the five issues should be coming out something like July, August, September, October, etc. And then in the following year, just twenty sixteen, early in twenty sixteen, the graphic novel should be out. And by that time, there should be hopefully we'll have had another five issues out. So yeah. Fingers crossed. Let's hope that this works because I love working with Ben, obviously. I mean, that's yeah. great fun. But but Lee and Lewis are such a great art team. And, you know, everybody always has to say, that. oh, well, we love working with such and such. But in this case, it's so true because we were so delighted with what he did because we didn't know – we'd never seen – our scripts brought to life as comics before. Well, I, I'd done some stuff for Doctor Who, but not for Rivers of London. And suddenly, it's like a whole new world because none of these characters had ever been visually represented before. Mm. Like Nightingale. What does Nightingale look like? What does Peter look like? Yeah. What does Beverly Brooke look like? She, she looks very nice, I have to tell you. She looks lovely. <laughs> and Molly. And like we haven't seen Molly yet because she doesn't turn up in the first issue. So next issue, we're going to see what Molly looks like for the first yeah, time. Really and obviously it's a two-way thing. So if, you know, if we think that Peter doesn't look quite right, we get back to Lee and say, oh, you know, he looks like, he, he looks, um, he should be younger and thinner, something like that. And so there might be some back and forth about Molly, but then it gets fixed and then you've got this character. It's just, it's great fun. It really is. Brilliant. Look forward to that one, definitely. And, and what else are you up to nowadays? What, you know. Well, I'm glad you asked because um, I've just got a three-book deal with Titan. I've been writing crime novels uh, and what happened was Ben wrote these big best-selling books and they were a big success. And he said to me, you know what the trick is? The trick is to write about what you really love. And I love London and I love science fiction. Uh, although the books, Rivers of London, are kind of supernatural fantasies, they are grounded in a realistic um, rationale. So they are science fiction. So Ben loves science fiction and London and crime novels. So he sort of combined those and he came up with Rivers of London. So I thought, well, what do I love? And what I love is uh, I love jazz and I love collecting records and sort of 
poking around in in charity shops looking for uh, you know a wonderful record and i love crime novels so i came up with this the vinyl detective who's basically a record collector a record hunter uh who goes out there and solves mysteries and crimes each book involves uh, a record like the record is sort of like the maltese falcon if you know what that is it's the MacGuffin. Yeah. there's a rare record for each book which is at the center of the mystery and there's murder and mystery and mayhem a lot of fun and i wrote these i wrote one of these books and i loved it so much i wrote the other two which you should never do you should never write a sequel until you sold the first book but i did this a couple of years back just when ben was launching his books so there's these three novels and my agent couldn't find a publisher and he kind of shrugged and he gave up but thanks to a chap called guy adams who's another science fiction writer another comic book writer great bloke he introduced me to an editor titan books called miranda jewess who's wonderful and she loved these books uh, you're saying what well, I'm doing. I've got a three-book deal for my crime series, The Vinyl Detective. First book due out about April 2016. But getting back to Doctor Who, it's probably worth mentioning. Um, my Two of my Doctor Who comic strips have been reprinted in a volume called The Good Soldier from Panini, which includes a bunch of other strips uh, by other hands, like Paul Cornell. Uh, and it's, it's, so that's a nice kind of graphic novel thing that, that's just being published now. And also, if people want to see something that's purely my work on Doctor Who, I've done this book called Script Doctor, which by a great stroke of luck when I was working on the show, I kept a diary. So I was able to kind of, you can, it's like a little time capsule. I was able to write down what was said and done behind the scenes when we we're making the show. So my book Script Doctor is out there. It's from Milk Publishing, which is spelled M-I-W-K for reasons we won't go into. <laughs> But definitely check out check out the comic. It's dynamite. It, it it should be great. Definitely, definitely. And just to sort of finish off with, obviously, Doctor Who now is back with a, a vengeance and has been now for ten years. Um, are, you, are you do you have a are you a fan of it at all? Do you watch a little bit of it or? I watch it now and then. Um, I, I, oh, they very kindly invite me to the, uh, the the grand Christmas show at the, the BFI, Brilliant. and I you know I love doing that. But the the truth is. It's a bit like a party that I haven't been invited to. So I don't watch it religiously because I feel left out. Yeah, <laughs> I know that right. sounds kind of sad, but, it, but that's the way I feel. So I don't follow it closely, but I'm very aware of what's going on. Like, so for instance, when I saw they got Capaldi, I thought, yeah, what a yeah. great idea. Fantastic. But there have been great casting decisions all the way through. As soon as I heard that, that they were going to cast... The, the, who they were going to cast as Rose, as soon as I heard the name Billy Tyler, I thought, yes. Mm. Billy, yeah. Piper. Billy, Billy Piper, Piper. They, they got it absolutely. Rose Tyler, Billy Piper. Sorry about that. Yes. Yeah, I thought yes, John would have appreciated that because she she had she came with a built-in kind of um, following because she'd been a successful singer, yeah. and I thought so. You get this instant publicity blast, but also she was perfect. Like, yes, I, I thought at that point I knew that Russell knew what he was doing, mm. and they've continued to know what they're doing with the casting all the way through, uh, and Capaldi just being the latest example of that. Have you ever been approached in discussions about writing for the new I series? would love to. I'd love to. I went up to Steve Moffat uh, at the um, the Christmas show in the BFI. Mm. And I said, oh, you know, Ben's got a great idea for, for a Doctor Who story. And, and he just sort of chuckled. So I took that chuckle to mean... Uh, we've I got know. plenty of writers. We've got plenty of writers. Sunshine, don't bother us. But uh, Ben does have a fantastic. What well, Ben has got this fantastic idea for a Doctor Who story, which occasionally we talk about from time to time. So I'm not in no way saying that. I wouldn't love to do. It. I'd love to do one. And I, you know, I've got some stories up my sleeve, but I just—it seems a bit of a shame that Ben is this terrific story and nobody's 
beating his door down to commission him because he's such a great who rider. He definitely is. And, and so are you. I'd love to see something from and Mark, you know, yourself and, yeah, and, and Mark. Mark, uh, he, you see that Mark had written this this Cyberman story called Spare Parts. Brilliant, and brilliant. They were, they were going to adapt that uh, as a TV series, as a two-part Doctor Who television show. Mm. And then I, it all kind of mutated and they did the Cyberman story, which wasn't quite that. Mark was very badly treated. They should have just hired Mark Platt to write it. Who could be better? Yeah, no, and Spare Parts is definitely up there as one of the best big finished you know, stories, without a doubt. Um, is, are we allowed to know a little bit of what Ben's Doctor Who, potentially Doctor Who's about or not? It features the Doctor. Excellent. That's a very informative one, Andrew. <laughs> That's a spoiler. <laughs> well, Andrew Catmull, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure, sir. It's been a great pleasure for me to...